1: and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam.
0: Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Tom Castelli joined here with Richard Cooney and Bill Zoller, managing partners of Park Capital Partners. The company seeks to identify exceptional properties in growing markets with incredible potential. Alongside their client investors, they seek to purchase and rebrand these properties to be consistent performers and a valued part of the community that is steadily increasing in value. In today's episode, we discuss Bill & Rich's investment strategy and why they're in the markets they're in, how the price of construction materials is impacting supply, portfolio allocation, cryptocurrency, and much more. Before we dive right into today's episode, we wanted to let everybody know that we had a lot of positive feedback from the recent 2021 Tax and Legal Summit, where we discussed lucrative tax and asset protection strategies with top legal and tax experts in the industry, including the real estate professional status, the short-term rental loophole, how to use passive losses, cost segregation studies, 1031 exchanges, self-directed retirement accounts, the CARES Act, entity structuring, estate planning, and so much more. If you missed this incredible event designed to help you save thousands in taxes and help protect the assets and wealth you work so hard to build, you can still purchase the recordings for only $97 at recordings.taxandlegalsummit.com. That's right. You can get all 30 sessions from the Tax and Legal Summit for just $97. Just head on over to recordings.taxandlegalsummit.com to grab your copy today. Bill, Richard, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give our listeners a little information on your background and your work?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Brandon and Thomas, for having us. We really appreciate it. We're certainly glad to be here with you guys today. Bill and I run Park Capital Partners. Uh, We're a real estate firm that invests in multifamily properties. Uh, We buy uh, large apartment buildings around the Southeast and, uh, we've been able to, our purpose for doing this is to, to, is to make our investors money and to make the properties better, uh, where the, where the actual residents live. So that's what we're about. And, uh, you know, glad to be here.
3: Yeah, absolutely. My name's uh, Bill Zaylor. Like Richard said, we were partnered up on uh, Park Capital Partners a few years back and, uh, been working together about, uh, the last four years to, yeah B and C class asset or BC and A class assets now in the, uh, the Southeast, 100 to 300 units, 1985 to 2005, and it's kind of the value-add strategy has been our
0: forte. All right. All right. So I know you guys have investment backgrounds prior to joining up and teaming up and doing some syndications. What markets and asset classes have you had exposure to over your investment careers? And would you be able to kind of walk us through maybe a little bit about how your strategy evolved? over time? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I started real estate
3: investing probably back in uh, around 2004 timeframe. At the time, I was living out in uh, Phoenix, Scottsdale, Arizona, and did a lot of, um, it's kind of the BRRRR strategy now, I guess, but would buy a property, live in it, get good uh, residential debt on it, and then lease that out all over to the next property and continue that to accumulate quite a few single family assets. But as we you know, started doing the math and realized that uh, we wanted to be um, Little larger numbers, so kind of worked on the transition to getting into multifamily and doing the syndication side of it. But that's been kind of the uh, the background on how I got started. and then, like I said, the uh, the syndication avenue is is what we're pursuing now with the uh, the multifamily assets. And some of the evolution on that was our, our first project we had that we uh, went around trip on here uh, last year uh, it was a C- class property, workforce housing. It was a great project for us and the investors. But we did learn along the way that we wanted to move up the food chain a little bit. So now we look more a decade or two newer, like I said, late 80s to 90s properties and B plus areas, A minus areas. So that's kind of some of the evolution we've had uh, as far as the, the direction the company goes.
2: And as far as my background goes, I, I have, uh, I've been newer to this than, than certainly Bill. I'm about five years into the uh, real estate side. And really how it started for me was it was really just, again, sort of a side stream of income, just something to do for retirement, for, you know, build some wealth for my family. You know, so I dug into things and tried to figure out how I can learn. And I'm a big believer in education. Certainly, I think that's really important to make sure you know what you're going into, that type of thing. You learn the lingo and the language and things like that, just so you're you're taken as credible. So uh, my wife and I bought a single family on a short sale about four years ago. And uh, it was funny because right after we had the property under contract, we ran the numbers and we're like, Oh my gosh, we got this is gonna take forever to replace my income passively. So, uh, you know, I jumped into really learning about the apartment side of things. And then, um, you know, I remember bill was actually moving in the same direction. So we, we decided let's okay, look, we're trying to move in the same direction. Let's let's work together. So we teamed up and have been uh, working together ever since.
0: Nice. Nice. And what markets are you currently focused on a- again these days? Yeah, we're focused in the
2: southeast, large, typically the larger cities. We'll look in some of the secondary markets as well. Atlanta, Greenville, South Carolina, you know, a couple of areas in in North Carolina, Charlotte RTP. You know, we'll look a little bit in Tennessee as well depending upon the opportunity, things like that. Uh, so, you know, kind of the true uh typical markets uh as I mentioned. So,
0: yeah. You know, there's a lot of syndicators out there and a lot of people talking about a lot of hot markets across the country. You know, Texas is hot right now. Of course, where you guys are looking is hot. And there's other areas. Why those areas specifically and why not other areas? Mm-hmm. maybe? Yeah, perhaps. I think a lot of that
3: goes with your strategy. So we have to have an exit strategy also. So those are like Atlanta, for instance, is a, a very deep market. There's a lot of turnover there, a lot of buyers, a lot of sellers, just a lot of transactional volume. So there's never going to be Like one employer, like in a small town that closes up shop, goes out of business, and then all of a sudden there's no need for, you know, 20% of the supply of rental units. So it's a very diverse, a lot of jobs, a lot of growth, relatively cost-living, business-friendly environments. All the things are all we look for when we, uh, we look for a market we want to invest in.
2: And to add to that, uh, one of the things that is very important to Bill and I is we're hands-on. You know, we run these properties when, uh, not to say we run the property management, we hire professional property managers to actually do the day-to-day, but we manage the manager. And so it's really important to us to be able to get to these assets within a, you know, reasonable drive, um, you know, four-hour radius, that type of thing. So, I mean, at some point we'll go out beyond into some of the other markets, but at least at this point, that's our our approach.
3: Anyway, we would develop also an expertise. I'd say, uh, Richard, over the over the last several years of, you know, touring many properties down in each of the cities we're interested in, and we we can develop a you know feel and expertise for that city, versus you know trying to be an expert in 50 cities. It's, you're not going to have that kind of depth if you don't really get that granular in the market. So we like to specialize in a few markets we know well.
0: No, that makes a lot of sense. I've always kind of viewed it in a very similar way, you know, how can you build any economies of scale or, you know, strategic efficiencies or, you know, really understand the market share and if you're going to be, you know, spreading yourself too thin, you know, chasing after four different markets or, you know, something along those lines. So, you know, that definitely makes sense. I guess my next question here would be at this point, you know, we're seeing the overall financial markets is everything is really hot right now from stocks to real estate. You know, there's all this money pouring into the economy, people pushing prices of everything up. I mean, I just spoke to someone yesterday, they're trying to convince me to <laughs> invest in Bitcoin and and all these cryptocurrencies because like you're sitting on cash right now, you can't be sitting on cash. That's ridiculous. I guess, where do you see the market going for, for real estate specifically, you know, being since you guys are like boots on the ground and, you know, you're involved in this pretty heavily?
3: Yeah. Richard and I have noticed, you know, there's a lot of competition, prices are getting bid up. Uh, we're very disciplined in our in our approach, so there's a lot of things we'll we'll pass on. But just the overall, like heating up the economy and real assets, you know, I think the, the statistic we recently read was, in, like in the last 12 months, they've almost doubled the supply of money in circulation, so up 40 percent, I believe. So there is a chance, depending on the velocity of money, you know, it's just real increase in inflation. So. A lot of our investors have, you know, been very interested in the last deals about having actually hard assets, you know, because you'll be able to index, raise rents to just for the inflation. So actually having real assets has been a benefit that mm-hmm. people are looking for versus, you know, fiat currency or bonds or something like in that nature.
2: Yeah. And, and again, just to add to that, um, you know, certainly with the way the world's changed, uh, you know, over the past year. There are certain sectors in real estate that are, even though they are physical assets, there are certain sectors in real estate that are you know, not doing so great, you know, office and, uh, you know, unless you're talking medical office, you know, retail, things like that. And so what's happened is probably part of the prices going up, Thomas, is, is along that line is that you've got money leaving different real estate sectors coming into things like multifamily. You know, I do think it's really good overall in terms of just the fundamentals. You know, we we definitely still have a housing shortage. You know, there's certainly still opportunity to continue to develop these multifamily properties as well as take existing properties, which is where we operate in a value-add approach, and improve the buildings. You know, we certainly um, this this is where people live. This is their home. So when we buy a property, we really want to make sure we do right by the right by the investor business and so at the same point in time, we want it to be a really nice place for the residents. Yeah, so we spend capex. You know, um, you know, sometimes million, million or more dollars to really make the the apartment uh, complex nicer and better for the residents. So,
1: how has the housing shortage affected your ability to acquire multifamily properties?
2: I don't know so much of this, the housing shortage that's affected that. It's, I think it's really more the money pouring into, into the multifamily assets. You know, I, I think that, um, you know, we, we don't develop and, you know, maybe that's in our, you know, that'll be something for us down the road. But at this point, um, you know, certainly the development still seems to be moving in, in a good pace in, you know, different parts of the country. You know, so I do think that certainly what's happened, though, unfortunately, is that the material costs are going through the roof. And that is, you know, obviously is going to stress the ability for, you know, certain developers to say, you know what, wait a minute, you don't build a C property, you don't build a B property, you build an A property because of the cost of material. So that pretty much means you have to be driving the premium rents to be able to get the return on money. You know, I did hear something recently about somebody that was building, uh, you know, workforce housing just with, uh, you know, lower quality finishes to make it still keep it in an affordable range. And that, you know, that strategy could make some sense. But I think it's really again the material labor costs that are driving you know prices up, and that's if anything that's what's limiting um, you know bringing online more housing. But again, the population is still growing, so you know I, I do think that we'll never quite catch up with the pop, with the uh, with the demand for housing.
3: Just so, so on the on the uh, demand for uh, apartment units, you know, there, we're not quite sure how all the kind of the unintended consequences are going to happen from the the pandemic and everything as we're hopefully in the the tail end stages of that but you know if you look at some of the late payments uh people that are in forbearance if there's going to be when all this gets washed out i guess if there's going to be quite a few foreclosures you know that's going to move from single family homes to apartments for a certain period of time anyhow so there, there may be you know some supply move back and forth that we're kind of haven't quite read into
1: it yet How has the pandemic changed how you underwrite deals? We've
3: been a lot more conservative. Um, One of the last deals we took down in Greenville during the pandemic, typically you would, your CapEx budget, uh, some of your renovation schedule, all that, you know, typically you hit the ground running, you want to start, you know, renovation schedule, improve it. We pushed that back. We closed in the third quarter of 2020 and we pushed it back until starting the second quarter. So we gave it, uh, you know, three full quarters, basically to get stabilized, see where we're at, and then we'll start the renovation schedule. We also spread it out over a four-year period versus a two because we wanted to protect the cash flow versus having too many units down at one time. Uh, some of the assumptions on rent growth, a lot of people would have modeled, you know. of course, this, you need to be more granular in this and find out what your market is, but a lot of people who just typically underwrite like 3% rent, organic rent growth to the property. We started off with a 0% for the first year, then is like 1% year two, 1.75, year three. It wasn't until uh, into year four, we got back to more normalized rent growth. So we, we were very conservative in some of the underwriting, uh, of course, locked rates and everything else, took long-term debt. So we have some, you know, if they don't recover as quick as we hope it, anticipate it will, we don't have a gun to our head like in 36 months or something like that, having to refinance capital markets are frozen like they were back in 08, 09. So we, we wanna build a lot of options for, for the exit and also long-term survivability of the projects. Right, and if we find out we have the opportunity
2: because the market demands it to increase rent sooner right. or to accelerate our renovation schedule sooner because again, the market demands it, then we'll, we're positioned to do that, mm-hmm.
1: so. And going forward, let's jump a couple years ahead. Everything's back to normal. Are you still gonna remember this and underwrite your deals? with some sort of contingency plan or um, like, how is it going to impact you longer term?
3: Right. Uh, and that's, that's, a good question, right? It's, you know, it's kind of a black swan event, right? No one saw it coming, no one planned for, you know, especially, you know, local businesses, you know, the local Mon business didn't have, you know, 12 months of cash sitting aside to with no customers to be able to run it. So the reserves, uh, you know, would carry a little heavier reserves and we had it prior or most people did prior. So I think the reserve underwriting a little more conservative on rent growth. We were fairly conservative on anyhow. We, we were very granular in a model. We, you know, did everything didn't just increase at the end of each year. We took month, unit by unit, on the downtime, the renovation time. All that was very segmented and granular in our approach to begin with. But um, I think just the little reserves and a little more reserves and knowing that it could be longer
0: for the release of those is something we'd model for. It uh, makes a lot of sense. You know, definitely there's a lot of change that came around, you know, as a result of it, you know, everything that happened. No one saw this coming and, you know, it's hard to tell where the future is. But I guess overall, in your point of view, you feel that the fundamentals of the real estate investing itself are still very strong in the markets that you're in, like, the, you know, the job specifically, because, you know we all know that jobs is ultimately what attracts people to any given market. And, you know, if there's no jobs, there's no, you know, there's no jobs, there's no renters, right? So I guess that's not really a question. I guess this is more or less just something I was saying, you know, but on the passive investor side, you know, when you work with passive investors, you raise capital, you know, what have been, you know, most recently the most important factors and considerations that those passive investors have been looking at while, you know, making a decision whether or not to invest.
2: I think it's, um, things along the lines that Bill mentioned earlier, you know, the idea that, you know, wait a second, you know, do I want to buy paper assets in a corporation, a stock where I have absolutely no control over how that stock performs and, you know, Or do I want to, you know, put my money in something that's a little more physical, you know, like an apartment building? You know, it's obviously something you can touch and feel. And, you know, it does have tax advantages, as we know about, of course, you know, because it's real estate. So, you know, I think that's definitely a a heavy factor that's been on a lot of investors' minds is to really, you know, say, hey, what's my best hedge against inflation? Is, Is it a paper asset? Is it a physical asset? You know, we know that the Fed tries to introduce, you know, some controlled manner of, you know, of inflation. And then that's not been... Very successful lately over the many years, but uh, but at any rate, we do suspect that you know, inflation will come. Obviously, with with all the money supply, like we talked about earlier, you know, so being in a physical asset, I think has been really heavily on people's minds.
3: And another thing I would say, you know, it's it's kind of a just overall, you know, it'd be the the bond market, stock market, uh, it's a yield-starved environment, right? People are chasing yield because you know the ten-year when we closed uh, put debt on the uh, the when we closed third quarter, the ten-year was trading at uh, you know point five. 50 basis points, you know, an unheard of low. So, I mean, the A years that we typically paid were 10% pref. So, I mean, that's 20x what you could get on a 10-year treasury. So, I mean, there's, I guess, the cash-flowing businesses, people are looking for that. Stabilize, and that's on the risk scale, you know, we, we only buy stabilized assets anyhow. So, we're not looking for some big lease-up. We're not looking for some big turnaround. They're already cash-flowing. We're just going to improve the operation, improve the units, and boost the NOI. If something happens again, like we we took over a property uh, just for the, from the LP or the limited partners point of view, if we took over a property and then another you know event that no one saw coming happens and we have a million dollar CapEx budget, we can just stop renovating units. We just continue to lease them up. We ride through the downtime and then we can start renovations again. We're not committed to spending CapEx money in a down market or if it's, if it's looking like it's trending the wrong way. So there's a lot of safety in that also. Stabilize from day one long term debt and we also have a large capex budget for reserves that we can ride through, you know, hopefully any downturn.
0: Right. You know, speaking of debt, you know, we actually have an interesting question here. Mm-hmm. You know, when it comes to the debt, you know, right now interest rates are at all-time lows, you know, historically speaking, and you know, I personally haven't been paying attention to whether or not that's going to increase or not, but you know, let's just say what happens if debt becomes more expensive in the coming years, you know, that could potentially impact real estate values or at least impact transactions mm-hmm. taking place in the marketplace do you see that affecting your business at all or do you see that to be a significant threat in any way
3: at some point i was going to say i think there'll be you know price discovery right if the rates move up a lot then the assets will get priced accordingly to make the spread there's they're still, there's still good there's gonna have to be some adjustment in the market if they move up significantly that's one one part of it. the other part we kind of for our business like if we took a you know a 10-year fixed debt, uh, agency debt, that debt is assumable. So if we locked it in at 3% now, five years when our business model is complete, we can sell that into the market if rates are now five percent. You know, they can acquire ours at a, a significant discount to what they can currently go to the market for, they can get a supplemental and their blended cost of capital will still be lower than they go to the market for. So that could give us a competitive advantage on disposition also. So it's just different ways we we look at how we're, we're gonna model and how that could affect the our values going forward for the investors.
0: Nice. Nice. You know, we do have to take it through some tax questions here Mm -hmm. on the Real Estate CPA podcast. We (laughs) always do. And quick question before we ask our normal question, you know, when it comes to cost segregation studies, you know, I've spoken to numerous sponsors at this point in time, and there's some of them like to do cost segregation studies. Other ones don't. Um, I know that I have one sponsor I'm investing with that didn't do cost segregation study, so I'm gonna have to pay some tax on it, unfortunately, because I used all my passive losses already. <laughs> um, but what, what's your take on using cost segregation studies? You know, for the syndications that you do specifically,
2: we're, we're big believers in it. You know, we definitely think it's important to follow the tax law. In fact, actually, the, you know, you, you guys are the CPAs, not me, but the, you know, the tax law actually says you need to do a cost segregation study. So. You know, people, you know, sometimes don't realize that and, and uh, you know, maybe neglect to do so. So we're big believers in it. We learned that at the beginning of our, our world and, then, you know, doing the apartments that this is a valuable tool, you know, accelerating depreciation, you know, to the benefit of the investors is something that, uh, you know, we really believe in and support. And so we continue to do those on every one of our properties and, uh, you know, again, fully support it.
0: No, 100%. You know, at the at the end of the day, just kind of add in like a personal anecdote there. Like, you know, last year, at, towards the end of the year, I was like rushing to try to find a deal. I ultimately didn't make an investment. I just kind of sat on the sidelines due to uncertainty. And I was like kicking myself because I needed to make an investment to offset the mm-hmm. taxes on one of the other deals that came to do. So, you know, in my personal opinion, it only makes sense to do. I mean, right. it's, it's especially from a sponsorship standpoint you know, could attract investors in certain cases, you know, who need it for the tax benefits, you know, not that the tax benefits should come first in an investment decision, but you know, it's still, still a factor nonetheless. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And kind of Um, on just, just to chime in on that too. I think we get a lot of questions from limited partners about cost segregations and whether or not they can even benefit from them. And a lot of limited partners can't benefit from cost seg studies, right? I mean, they, that they invest in these deals, the loss that's getting, I put $100,000 into a deal, I get $92,000 back. It's a passive loss. If I don't have passive income or if I'm not selling another rental property or passive activity, then, then this passive loss just gets suspended and it mm-hmm. gets carried forward on my tax return. So that doesn't really help me that much. But but our advice to syndicators, to the general partners of these deals is typically, Do a cost segregation study anyway, because there is a handful of limited partners in every deal, or there are, I guess proper grammar, there are a handful of limited partners in every deal that can take advantage of the passive losses that are kicked out. They either have the passive income, they've got another syndication deal that's liquidating in the same year, and so the passive loss from this new investment is going to offset that gain, or they have passive income built out where the passive loss can offset that passive income, or... They qualify as a real estate professional. They make an aggregation election to group in all interests in rental real estate. um, And they can use that loss as a non-passive loss against their spouse's W-2 income or business income or something like that. So it's typically recommended for general partners to run with a cost segregation study, but not all limited partners can take advantage of it. And it's not a bad thing because even if you can't take advantage of it, it sits on your tax returns. It's a suspended passive loss. You will be able to use it to offset the gain at some point. It, it effectively doesn't impact you at all,
3: right? And to that point, Richard and I invest on the passive side, and other syndicators deal also just for some geographic diversity. So we can take that that loss, uh, even though we're on the LP side, because we, we are uh, active full-time real estate professionals.
2: And, and one thing that's also very important for us to mention here is that you know when we do talk to investors, you know we say that we're going to do a cost segregation study, but we don't make a promise about how that's going to impact their tax situation. because again, and we you know firmly call out, we're not tax professionals, please be sure to consult your, your tax professional, you know because again, we just don't want to set an expectation that they're going to see a benefit and they maybe can't take advantage of it because of not having the passive passive income like Brandon discussed.
0: Yeah, and just to jump in there on that real quick, you know, I think it's definitely from a limited partners perspective, it is important to speak to your specific CPA about this mm-hmm. stuff because like Bill and Rich are saying here that, you know, at the end of the day, what they're doing on their deal or whoever's doing on whoever's deal, it's a very limited, narrow point of view from what you can see. It doesn't take into account your entire situation and everything you have going on as a whole um when it comes to your tax situation. So you definitely gotta talk to your specific CPAs or tax advisor on how that works for you. Mm-hmm. So, um, outside of real estate professional status cost segregation studies, is there any other tax strategies that you use or that you've used in the past? Maybe that that beneficial to you.
2: I don't know that I can think of anything particular. I mean, certainly, you know, certainly when we're running a uh, a project, uh, you know, running an apartment syndication, we look. For every opportunity to increase the net operating income by, you know, by managing expenses and, you know, accelerating the income. We look for other income streams we can add into the mix to obviously, you know, help the property grow and be more valuable. And obviously, you know, for the investor's benefit, you know, and then obviously that income, of course, will be offset by the depreciation. So,
3: yeah, so we haven't had the opportunity to take advantage in like any 1031 exchange, if that's what you're we're driving at at this point. Uh, like the idea, just have it, the things haven't lined up quite right for that yet.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I know we're kind of jumping around a little bit here, but I just kind of wanted to see, you know, from an overall investment perspective, if you're comfortable with answering this, you know, what percentage of your portfolio do you have currently dedicated to real estate versus other assets?
2: Yeah, for me it's it's pretty heavily weighted toward uh, toward real estate, you know, more than more than fifty percent, I would certainly say. But I do certainly have some other things in you know, and you know, solar 401 K and that's uh, so certainly some in the market, some in some in crypto. And um, you know, every time I turn around the the needles Flipping all over the place, so obviously that's a little concerning. But anyway, uh, I think you definitely have to kind of put your puts. You know, certainly you know some metals is a great idea. Certainly some in crypto, and then obviously uh, you know spread yourself in different directions in terms of your portfolio. Yeah,
3: yeah. I would say I would say probably um, 40% real estate, and then mainly the markets. I also do some crypto investing and cash. I actually sit on you know a decent amount of cash because. We need it for pursuit cost. I mean, you, you get a deal in a contract and there's, you know, several hundred thousand dollars that needs to come out of pocket before you get to closing. So always have that as either an opportunity for uh, pursuing deals or, you know, market corrections, whatever that may be.
0: Yeah, you know, I got to say for me, you know, at this point, it's it's becoming clear that that need to get some money in crypto. A lot of people are telling me that it's the future. And they, I still believe in real estate is a huge thing. Yeah. It's going to be a dominant part of my portfolio most certainly. But yeah, I think crypto is definitely moving in that direction, I think, where, based on everything that I'm hearing, that it, there's going to be a time where it becomes adopted in some way. So yeah, I just kind of wanted to get your take on that. Yeah.
3: A lot of major players, I guess, in the last you know 12 months. I mean, Harvard, Yale Endowment, Brown, uh, Paul Tudor Jones, You know, a lot of well-known people in the industry that seem to have Kind of switch their position on crypto, I guess, as far as going forward. That I think it's gaining traction, like you're saying, it's it's acceptability and what is it, MedCast
0: Law, as far as the network effect. It's really what it drives the value and something like that. Yeah, I heard. Uh, so I, I spoke to someone yesterday, and the the only reason why this is so forefront of my mind because yesterday I was having the conversation. He's like, yeah, he's like, yeah, do some of these uh, cryptocurrencies are starting to catch fire on Reddit. And uh, huh. <laughs> if, if when that happens, that's when you know something's going to move. So I'm like, oh God, I don't know. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> this is real financial
1: advice from Reddit for sure. It's right. <laughs> uh, Wall it's Street right. bets, GameStop all the way. <laughs> it's yeah, right. <laughs> exactly.
3: What could go wrong?
1: <laughs> right. Right. Just a bunch of random people. Yeah, hundred percent.
0: Right. All right. We, this is a real estate focused podcast. But um, so, if our listeners, you know, wanted to get in touch, do so you want to learn more about? Park Capital Partners LLC, mm-hmm. which you which you have going on at any given time, what would be the best way for them to do so? Yeah,
3: absolutely. Uh, you could find uh, Richard and I on our website. It's www.partcapitalpartnersllc.com, and both of us are on LinkedIn, Facebook page. Park Capital
0: Partners, also any
3: of those are good mediums to
0: contact us through. All right. So what we'll do, we'll go ahead and drop that into the show notes for everybody who is listening. And want to thank uh, both Bill and Rich for coming on today. Um, Before we leave, any parting words to the audience? I would
2: I would say certainly, um, you know, again, definitely, if you've never considered, uh, you know, being part of a real estate syndication, it's a fantastic way to put your money to work in a passive way that, uh, you know, is really something that can do good things. I mean, you know, again, we recently sold uh, one particular investment and uh, property, and we had planned an eighteen-hour internal rate of return. And we wound up being able to uh, beat a 22 internal rate of return. So, you know, it's certainly something that, uh, obviously, you know, learn what you're going into, but we definitely think it's a way to put some money that's idle into a great asset that has, you know, tax advantages. And, you know, we certainly think that um, that's a great way to go.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think I would just add to that is um, get to know, I, I think it's more important to have people you trust and like on the team running the projects for you. It's better to have a mediocre deal and good sponsors versus a great deal and poor sponsors, because you're going to lose money on on the second one. So, you yeah, know, your team, get comfortable with them, get comfortable with your markets and where you're on the risk scale. You know, if, if you, you see one prospectus that has, you know, 25% return, you know, and it's the same market as somebody else doing 13, you know, see what the differences are, because the main are assumptions, right? The debt's the same, everything else is going to be relatively constant. So, I guess really, really dig into the numbers and make sure you understand what you're looking at on the offering memorandums.
1: That resonates with me, Bill. I can confirm from our side, we see a lot of sponsors' deals and how they operate. And there are sponsors with what looks to be amazing deals on paper, but they're unorganized sponsors and they tank the deal. then there are sponsors that go out and acquire deals that you're just sitting here scratching your head going, there's no way they can make this work and then they come out on the other side with what you said, 15, 18, 20% IRR. And it's like, holy crap, how'd you do it? But then you look at how they run it and everything's very organized, very tight. Uh, so yeah, d- definitely make sure that you're investing with sponsors that know what they're doing.
2: Absolutely. I tell you what, let me, let me add one more thing to that point, Brandon. And, and that is, you know, our approach, as we look at a deal, we, we definitely take a conservative approach. Um, Terry, who's our VP of acquisitions has an institutional background, where he's underwritten deals for billion-dollar family offices, for you know, large multifamily institutions that buy and sell these assets all day long. You know, he also understands what the lenders are looking for. So when we when we size a deal, when we when we put out metrics that are indicating this is the type of range we can expect, you know. We feel very confident in those numbers. You know, I mean, Obviously, nobody has a crystal ball, but at the same point in time, we take an approach and a position that says, listen, we're going we're to take a realistic view to this. We're not going to give the investor some pie-in-the-sky story that uh, just can't be achieved.
0: Absolutely. Picking the right sponsor is absolutely critical. Absolutely. So we're going to go ahead and drop uh, Bill and Rich's information into the show notes below. Great. And uh, thank you again for coming on. It's been an excellent episode. Thomas, uh, Brandon, thank you. Really appreciate
3: it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you,
1: guys.